You're listening to the Whole Vineyard Podcast. To find out more about the Whole Vineyard Church, go to wholevineyard.co.uk. Hi. <laughs> Good evening, church. My name's Chelsea. Um, I'm going to be reading our reading tonight. It's from 1 Peter 2, verses 11 to 25. Uh, living godly lives in a pagan society. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep gone astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Thank you, Chelsea. Evening, everybody. Great to be here tonight. Um, I've got to admit, when I first heard I was speaking this evening, I felt incredibly nervous because throughout lockdown, I've mainly had the pleasure of, um, and before we could do the kids' groups, leading family services. So I was wondering, can I still speak to adults? (laughs) But you look like a friendly bunch. Second thing I felt nervous about was when John gave me that passage, I was thinking, Gosh, that's a little bit of a tricky one. But then I did feel slightly better that I didn't have 1 Peter 3. Wives, submit to your husbands. I'm leaving that one to John and Joni for another week. (laughs) I'm obviously joking here. Um, I've got so much out of this passage because although it's written for a very different culture and time, there is so much to be learned and to take away from these verses. It's really important to remember when reading this passage that Peter wasn't making a political comment for or against slavery or for or against the rulers of the time, who we know were known for treating the early Christians really brutally, including burning them at the stake. 
Rather, Peter's concerned here with teaching the early Christians, slave or otherwise, how to live honorable lives in the light of their new primary identity as followers of Jesus, loved children who Jesus suffered and died for to set them free from sin and death. Indeed, it's that they recognize their freedom and new identity in Christ that Peter wants to stress. As chosen people belonging to God, loved sons and daughters of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords with an eternal inheritance, they are free to choose their actions and reactions as exiles on earth. Now they have discovered their real purpose to reveal to unbelievers who God is and what he has done to declare the praises of the one who called them out of darkness into his wonderful light, which is why we read a few verses that Josh covered last week. So although we live in a very different culture in some ways, the advice that Peter gives in this passage has enormous, enormous relevance for us today too. Because like the exiles, like the early Christians, we're living as exiles in a minority group in a society that increasingly looks, thinks, and acts in a way that's in odds with what the Bible teaches. And just like them, we need to consider how to live in such a way amongst unbelievers that what we claim to believe is seen in our lives. Peter addresses the question of what a life looks like that will cause the lost world to take notice and give glory to God. And that's a question we need to ask ourselves just as much today. So we're going to be looking at the passage through three themes that it raises, all beginning with S. Is there anybody who's a fan of alliteration here? I know I am. It helps us to remember the main points, doesn't it? So we're going to be looking at submission, suffering, and following in Jesus' steps. Again, it doesn't feel like very popular themes here, but bear with me. There's much to be gained from them. So first of all, we're going to be looking at submission. Throughout this passage, and as we continue to look in future weeks at chapter 3, there is a key word that Peter repeats, submit. Now, I don't know about you, but the word submission can make many people, Christians included, cringe a little bit, feel a bit uncomfortable. Often due to personal experience, they view submitting as something negative, something harsh, something oppressive. The word submit or submission means to submit under the authority or power of someone else and is usually something you have to do rather than by choice. For example, who drove here tonight? Quite a few of you. And I'm sure that many of you will have at least tried to obey the speed limit, especially when you went past that yellow camera on Cliff Road, for those people who went that way. We submit to many other laws of the land, knowing that if we break them, there'll be consequences. Then there are examples in the workplace. Before I took on this role as assistant pastor at the church, I was a primary school teacher for 19 years. And there were lots of parts of my job that I absolutely loved, mainly involving what I thought I was signing up to do when I chose my career path, that is, teaching and helping children. However, over the years, the increase in additional paperwork, data collections, lesson observations, not to mention the dreaded visits from Ofsted. We've got any teachers in the room tonight who are relating? Yeah, <laughs> you are amazing. Brilliant. Serve that applause. 
So I had some fantastic Ofsted visits and some terrible ones too. But it seemed to take over my entire existence as I was expected to submit to the demands of not only the head and the senior management team, but the local authority and the government too. When the person or people you are submitting to use their control to harm rather than to help or to control rather than support, no wonder the term has a negative connotation for many. The biblical idea of submitting or submission is quite different, not so much because it means something different. It pretty much means the same thing. It's different because of our motivation and reason for submitting. And that is the example of perfect submission that we see in the life of Jesus. As Christians, he is the one to whom we're ultimately submitted. And unlike other forms of worldly submission, this is a choice out of our free will. And of course, the reason we want to submit to Jesus and his teaching is because we've tasted and seen that he is good. He is a good master, that he is loving and he is kind. So let's take a closer look at some of the verses in the passage to explore this further. I'm just going to have a look at verses 11 to 15, first of all. So, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing so, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Now, I don't know about you, but I found it easy when reading this passage to miss the words that are highlighted above on the screen for emphasis in bold. Peter isn't telling the Christians to submit to earthly authorities for no reason or because they are good. As I've talked about, we know that they often aren't and they weren't. Rather, he tells them to submit themselves for the Lord's sake. Peter is reminding his readers that our first submission is to Jesus. Having chosen to make Jesus Lord of our lives, we demonstrate this by doing what he says and following his example. And this includes sometimes submitting to unjust authorities as Jesus had to in his life. It's also important to note here that submission is not necessarily the same as obedience. We can see this from a passage in Acts involving Peter himself when the apostles were questioned by the Sanhedrin. It's found in Acts 5, um, verses 28 to 29, if you want to look it up. It says, the Sanhedrin leaders say, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. To which Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. In this case, accepting the Sanhedrin's punishment for obeying God is in and of itself a form of appropriate submission to human authority. It's clear here that though some people were falsely accusing it's clear here though that some people were falsely accusing Christians of wrongdoing. And Peter encourages them to make their defense by living good lives, doing good deeds, acting in the opposite spirit to what they were facing from their accusers. By doing so, he says they will silence, or I've understood the Greek word is muzzle, their ignorant and foolish talk. Notice that Peter doesn't say here that the end result of our submission to authority will be fair treatment. 
or even freedom from harm. Instead, he says that those who know believers well enough to see our faith lived out on a day-to-day basis will recognize that we do this because we are followers of Jesus. In another passage, it describes us as the aroma of Christ to those around us. And some may even come to faith themselves. So just to add a little bit of a personal story here, both my husband Andy and I have gone some very, through some very difficult times in our previous jobs, where wrong or at best twisted accusations were leveled at us, resulting in grossly unfair treatment. Although thankfully this didn't happen to us both at the same time, there were many parallels in our experiences. And we both went through seasons where it was really, really difficult to keep on keeping on as what was happening was severely affecting our mental health, including the ability to eat and sleep, and therefore it was having a knock-on impact on our whole family. However, we were spurred on by the love and prayers of our church family, natural family, and close friends, and daily fixing our eyes on Jesus, we continued somehow to put one foot in front of the other, showing up on some really dark and difficult days, knowing that God would vindicate us And he did. One of the verses that was given to both of us prophetically by various people was, the Lord your God will fight for you, you need only be still. And we've both seen God's redemption and justice at work in amazing ways as we look back at our situation. And we can both see that we learned lessons that we would never have learned without going through these tough times. One of the ways we've seen God at work is the impact of the handling of our situations had on our work colleagues, causing them to ask questions about our faith in Jesus. And it was just such a moment of joy for us when, out of a terrible situation, one of Andy's former colleagues um, saw it, seeing how he responded to what he was going through at work, asked if she could come and do the Alpha course at our church, and she came to faith herself. And we're delighted she's part of our church family today. So I just wanted to share that to say this is a little bit of this passage um, lived out as we've seen in our lives. Peter goes on to say in verses 16 and 17, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter is stressing here that Christians are free people in Christ, whatever their situation on earth. He uses the term God's slaves to remind them of who they belong to now, Jesus. In Galatians 3 verses 26 and 28, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there any male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. However, it's obvious here that some of the early Christians were viewing their newfound freedom as an excuse to deliberately choose to do the wrong things. Peter is saying to use our freedom as a way of justifying wrong or sinful actions is a deep misunderstanding of what it means to be a free servant of God and also what Jesus did for us. He follows this with four simple commands as to how he wants us to deal with human authorities, neighbors, and other believers. First, we're instructed to show proper respect to everyone, 
whether they're worthy of it or not. Second, we are to love the family of other Christians. Again, this is a blanket statement with no exceptions. All Christians, not just those we like. To love here goes beyond liking. It is to will God's best for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In other passages, we see that it's sharing, for example, with other Christians whatever's needed. I wonder if Peter has in mind here as well Jesus' teaching in John 13, 35, where he said, the world would know we are his disciples by our love for one another. Third, he commands us to fear God, which doesn't mean to be afraid or terrified of him. God has already demonstrated his great love for us in Jesus. Instead, it means to honor and revere him, to be mindful of his power and majesty, to be in awe and wonder of all he has done. Finally, honor the emperor or king, even if they aren't an honorable person. This must have been a particularly tough one for the new believers, who may have wondered why they needed to honor or pay taxes to a man that was trying to kill them. After commanding all Christians to submit to human authorities, Peter now speaks specifically to Christian slaves about their masters, particularly about how to endure unjust suffering. So we're going to look at the theme of suffering. I'm just going to take a sip of water too. So in 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 20, it says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Again, this is a difficult and slightly tough passage for us to understand in our current culture, so it needs explaining in context. It's really important to know that slavery in Peter's time was different to how we as modern readers often process the term. For example, it had little to do with race. Slaves included those born into slavery as children, those who had sold themselves into servitude for a set time. Some were highly educated, and served as artists, accountants, and craftsmen, and were treated relatively well, whilst others worked in terrible conditions. As much as we deplore the idea of slavery today, it was normal in Peter's culture. The theologian N.T. Wright says on this, in the ancient world, more or less, everything that is today done by electricity, gas, and motorized engines was done by slaves. That is not, of course, a defense of the system of slavery. Slavery was a form of systematic, legalized dehumanization. A slave was the property of his or her owner, who would provide enough board and lodging to enable the slave to work the next day and the one after that. But as property, the slave could be ill-treated, physically and sexually abused, exploited in a thousand different ways. We look down our noses at such a world without realizing that in many parts of today's supposedly free Western society, there are many people in virtually the same position. Often hidden from view, they work long hours for minimum wages. They cannot take time off or look for another job. 
they may have families to support, and to lose even a single day's wages, and perhaps their job as well, could be disastrous. They are stuck. They are slaves in all but name. If we want to sneer at ancient societies for being so barbaric, we should be careful. They may just sneer back. A large proportion of Peter's readers in the early Christian church would have been slaves or servants of one kind or another. And so it needs noting again that God's commands to slaves about submission are not an endorsement of slavery as an institution. It was the daily reality in which many were living. And therefore, Peter is addressing the question of how a Christian slave should live in the world now that they are free in Christ. They've found that greater freedom. His answer could be summed up like this. Don't make it about your master, make it about God. He acknowledges that the suffering they're, they're facing is unjust. He's not condoning that or calling that a good thing. Rather, he's saying that when unjust suffering happens, we can endure the pain and sorrow knowing that God himself suffered for us in the person of Jesus. N.T. Wright goes on to say in relation to these verses, here from our point of view, Peter sails very close to the wind. Putting up with unjust suffering looks to us very much like colluding with wickedness. Many a violent household, many an abusive workplace has been able to continue acting wickedly because people have been afraid to speak out and have kept their heads down and put up with the abuse. Blowing the whistle on such behavior can cost you your job, your home, or even in extreme cases, your life. Peter is not simply recommending that pe people remain passive while suffering violence or unjust suffering. There are so many Bible passages which state the contrary, that we as Christians are called to speak out against injustice and stand up for the rights of the oppressed. And as a church, we obviously would never advocate someone remaining in a violent or abusive relationship of any kind and would actively support them in finding a way out. However, Peter's recognizing here that there will be circumstances and situations that involve suffering during this life as exiles on earth, where there won't necessarily be a quick get-out option, and where the only option will be to endure. And the only choice we'll have is how we react to the suffering that we're facing. The Bible never promises a life free from suffering when we come to Christ, quite the opposite. We are told that in this life we will suffer and go through many trials. However, we know we serve a God who has overcome the world. We can take comfort that he will be with us in the midst of this as someone who is familiar with all of our sufferings. He will give us the strength to endure if we keep our eyes fixed on him. One of the charities that our church supports and who you can choose to give to when you sign one of our Connect forms is Open Doors, which seeks to support persecuted Christians all over the world. And Sam, our 21-year-old son, has been actively involved with this organization since his late teens and went on a mission trip to Southeast Asia with them a couple of years ago, helping to run a youth conference. What he witnessed there was life-changing for him. Teenagers who had walked for days, barefoot, in the rainy season, to attend this conference and meet with other believers, sharing story after story of harrowing persecution. 
Many had been disowned and cut off from their families for choosing to follow Jesus, and some were threatened with death. Sam and the team were obviously massively affected emotionally as they listened to what these young people had gone through. Yet he said the astounding thing as he looked around the sea of faces in the room was that none of the young people were shocked by what they were hearing. It was the norm for them. They all had a similar harrowing story. But nor was there any sense of pity in their voices. And he said that the joy, the passion, and the expectancy in the worship and prayer times were like nothing he had ever experienced. Here were some very young people who had literally lost everything in terms of worldly possessions and relationships for the sake of knowing Jesus. But they knew what they had gained, that they'd gained everything of eternal value. It was an experience that has marked him that he'll never forget. So Peter concludes this chapter by reminding us of Jesus, the perfect example of submission and suffering, describing how we should follow in his steps. So we're looking at verses 21 to 25. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate, and when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter is reminding us here that of all the injustices and suffering the world has ever seen, the most unjust and wicked act that ever took place was the crucifixion of Jesus, the Son of God. Because of this, he is our ultimate example, having suffered more than any human who ever lived, taking the punishment for the sins of the whole world, despite being completely innocent, having never committed any wrong. Peter goes back to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years earlier, quoting what would have been then and remains today a very well-known chapter, Isaiah 53, which describes the the suffering servant called to carry out God's world-saving purpose. It's a prophetic word fulfilled in the purpose of Jesus. And Peter is saying, this is Jesus. Now, does Jesus do this by starting a revolution, getting angry and fighting his way to victory? Quite the opposite. He does it by being unjustly treated, being insulted but not answering back, suffering in silence. Jesus didn't respond to his unfair imprisonment and trial the way his disciples had expected. They were taking out swords, thinking Christ might fight to defend himself. But he didn't defend himself physically or verbally. Jesus refused to retaliate when the, to the angry insults of the Jewish leaders, the Roman guards, or those who were taunting him on the cross. This is so countercultural to us, isn't it, in a society that is obsessed with personal rights where our human instinct is to throw insults back and repay wrong for wrong, a blame culture ready to punish and sue. 
Peter himself would have remembered cutting off the ear of one of the high priest's servants while trying to defend Jesus from being arrested, after which Jesus healed the servant's ear, told Peter to put his sword away, and said to him in Matthew 26, 53, Do you not think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus chose to endure the ultimate pain, injustice, and suffering of the cross because he was fully submitted to his Father's will and had complete trust in his love, goodness, and justice. He was totally secure in his identity and the purpose for which he had come to earth to take the punishment we deserve for our healing and salvation. Peter reminds us that he chose to do this whilst we were far from him, like sheep that have gone astray, knowing that he, that he was providing us with the means of returning to him, our good shepherd. I love Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, that says this. Let us run with perseverance the race, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was able to see beyond the temporal suffering to the infinitely greater future glory to follow for the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? Yes, it was defeating sin and death providing a way for all who call on his name to have access to the Father through him. It was returning to his home in heaven, exalted to the highest place. These are all correct answers, but it's important that on a personal level that we recognize that the joy set before him was you and I, in restored relationship with him, forgiven from sins with a promise of eternal life, filled with the Holy Spirit, as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We, like Jesus, and because of Jesus, have the power and the freedom to run with perseverance the race marked out for us on this earth, fixing our eyes on him through the joys, the sorrows, the suffering, because we can be secure in our identity as his dearly loved and chosen sons and daughters. Thank you for listening to the Whole Vineyard podcast. We would love to connect with you and welcome you home to church. To find out more, go to wholevineyard.co.uk forward slash connect. And stay up to date with all that is going on in the life of our church. Go to wholevineyard.co.uk forward slash church news and sign up for our weekly mailing. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.